Like James said, my name is Trevor, and I am a member of All of Life Church, and I get the privilege of teaching and preaching every once in a while. And I am really excited about what we're going to be talking about today, which is, again, like James read, out of Isaiah chapter 9. And um, specifically, as these four churches that we're partnered with right now, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says, Unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born. Uh, The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Uh, Last week, Jared uh, led us through Everlasting Father, and we had a piece of artwork for that. Uh, This one was actually made by Transform Ministries, uh, and this is representative of Wonderful Counselor, because that is our focus for today. Now, as we are looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it is easy, at least for me, to come to Isaiah chapter 9 and go, oh man, Wonderful Counselor. I love that Jesus is a counselor. He's just, he just meets me where I'm at and he takes care of me. But it's important that as we approach Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we remember that there is in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5, and verse 4, and verse 3, and verse 2, and verse 1. And then after Isaiah chapter 9 is Isaiah chapter 10. And so Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 is rooted in the entire story that Isaiah is trying to communicate. And so Isaiah was writing to a specific group of human beings— in a specific country, at a specific point in history, with a certain situation. He was trying to communicate something to them. So all the meaning that we derive out of Isaiah needs to be rooted in what he was wanting them to hear. And so what we are going to do is um, uh, look at all of Isaiah, or not all of it, but a, a, a some of the context because what Isaiah was communicating to that group of people in the nation of Judah that story has been preserved and valued and cherished for over 2,700 years to the point that we now are finding value in it in Post Falls, Idaho. So like I said, a wonderful counselor. Um, If we just kind of look at that right off the page, what are some of the conclusions we might come to or some of the meanings we might come to uh, just off the top of our head? First, right? Ooh, counselor. What do counselors do? Yeah, they they give advice, they're therapists. Thank you guys for engaging. I sincerely enjoy it when you do that. Um, Yeah, we think of a therapist, uh, right? A professional, I meet with him or her. They help me work out my issues. Oftentimes that's having to do with mental health or relational stuff. They're doing something where they're, they're helping me find some sort of internal peace or resolution. And then if we tack onto that, the word wonderful, it's like, yeah, it's wonderful. It's a delightful thing. It's something that's like, oh, it's a counselor that's really, really good. They're a great counselor, right? I would say, oh, that cheesecake was wonderful. Um, and so if we just tag those two things together, wonderful counselor, really good therapist. Sure. And here's the cool thing. That's true. Jesus is often called the great physician. Um, He was the first one to use the phrase born again, which understood well means he gives you a new heart. He literally breathes new life and vibrancy back into the human soul. He renews hearts and minds. He transforms us. He takes us out of darkness and places us into light, out of obscurity, into clarity of knowing who God is. The Spirit of God heals us. It makes us whole. It brings us internal peace. It transforms our relationships. 
All of that is true of the person of Jesus, and it is to be celebrated. That is what my heart needs in a Messiah, the promised king who will bring reconciliation, like the fact that he has those things. But that's not what Isaiah is saying. All of that is true, but it is not what Isaiah is saying. So if you would, follow me for the next 10 minutes so we can look at what Isaiah is saying, and then we will see where wonderful counselor, um, what it actually is getting to. So here's our plan for today. We're going to take about 10 minutes looking at what is the point Isaiah is making based on his context. All of that will ground our ongoing understanding of wonderful counselor. And then the way we're going to conclude is by looking at how has this son, this child who was given, how has he fulfilled that? And how will he continue to do so? So if we begin by looking at the context of Isaiah, um, Isaiah is actually a message to a king. So this is primarily about, there's all sorts of nations that are living near each other. And at this point of time, they're all kind of bumping up against each other and battling over grounds. And so the nation of Israel is surrounded by all these neighbors. And they're kind of struggling with the people around them. Israel at this point is also underneath a series of kings. One of them was so bad, his name was Rehoboam. He was such a bad king, half of the nation seceded in opposition. Half of the nation literally said, you're such a bad king, we're out of here. And that was in the year 930 BC. If you remember years that are BC, the bigger they are, the farther back they go. So this was about 2,700 years ago. Now, Israel has split into two nations. So Israel, the people of God, is under Rehoboam. Half of them leave, and they become the nation of Judah. And then the nation of Israel stays under Rehoboam, and then there's a bunch of kings that follow. Now, from this point at 930 BC, about 200 years pass until we pick up in Isaiah. It's about 200 years. And so during those 200 years, the nation of Judah, which is what Isaiah is talking about, the nation of Judah has 10 kings. And if you read about them in the Old Testament, um, it goes a little bit like this. And then there was this king, and he did this and this and this, and he did, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then there was this king, and he did this and this and this, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then there was this king, and there's this long list. And if you'd like to read more about those, um, if you'd hit the next slide, please. If you'd like to read more about any of this, you can go to 2 Kings chapter 16. That'll pick up right in the historical moment that Isaiah chapter 7 is talking about. Or 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Now, that's kind of picking up in the middle of the story. I would encourage you to go backward and then kind of forward as much as you're interested in, but that'll actually tell you the story about what's going on. Now, some of these kings did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Some of them did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And the effect of those kings who did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord is through their leadership, idolatry and injustice crept into the nation. Worship of pagan gods, unjust practices, unequal treatment of people, worshiping the wrong things. So if we pick up in Isaiah chapter 7, this is where Ahaz is king. Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so 
Like it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so some of what is occurring during the reign of Ahaz is Judah is being attacked by its old compatriot or its old friend Israel, right? So Israel has buddied up with its neighbor Syria, and they're trying to take over Judah. Ahaz is not happy about that. He's trying to protect his country. And so he goes to Assyria, sounds a lot like Syria, different nation. Um, He goes to the empire of Assyria, which is like the big bad empire of the region. And he goes to them to broker peace and gain aid. He's looking for political assistance. But here's what's interesting. Isaiah is a prophet sent by God specifically to Ahaz to give him counsel in this moment. Isaiah is sent with a message from God that says, Ahaz, stuff looks real bad. You've got two neighbors that are coming at you. You don't have to worry. Within a decade or so, there'll be nothing but an empty shell. You will survive. Here's what I want you to do. Trust in the Lord your God. Isaiah is calling Ahaz to fidelity in the one and only God, to trust him. Here's the problem. Ahaz doesn't know or trust God. Ahaz is actually written about as having sacrificed his own sons to pagan gods. Now, I don't know about you guys who are doing your best to follow Yahweh, but you probably are not sacrificing your children, right? Hopefully. So clearly Ahaz is not walking in step with the Lord. And so what does he do? He's worried. He does not trust the Lord. He goes to the temple of God, takes all the gold and silver out of it, and ships it to the king of Assyria as a bribe and says, will you come help us? We need you. And then with that, he promises fealty and submission. Chapter 8 of Isaiah, right before the chapter we're picking up in, tells us God's response. And God says there will be a consequence, King Ahaz, for what you have chosen to do. And God uses the image of a river, two rivers actually, to explain this. God, through Isaiah, says, Ahaz, you and the people of Israel have rejected me, and I am a gentle river that flows through the valley. That is the way that I care for my people. I'm a gentle river that flows through the valley. Because you've rejected me, you've actually gone to the large, swollen river of the Assyrian Empire. And in just a a small matter of time, that, that river of the Assyrian Empire will flood its banks, come crashing through the valley and destroy you. This will be the consequence of your political alliance. This will be the consequence that you have rejected me. So in summary, what Isaiah has done up until this point is he has called out that the greatest wisdom its kings have to offer The greatest wisdom its kings have to offer is trusting in fortified cities, big walls, big armies, lots of gold, and political allies. That's the wisdom of the kings of Judah at this point. Judah's kings have abandoned the wisdom and the governance of God, and they've pursued political and religious affiliations that benefited them. That's the summary of what Isaiah is communicating up until this point. And the result of all of this is cancer. And that cancer did not begin when Isaiah began prophesying. That cancer had been there for the whole time. 
Isaiah's prophecy is like the diagnosis that reveals the cancer that's been killing the body the entire while. If we look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4 to 5, God says this, Oh, what a sinful nation they are. They're loaded down with a burden of guilt. They are evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why do you continue to invite punishment? And must you rebel forever? Your head is injured and your heart is sick. Now with this, Isaiah is speaking to the king. But there's more being called out than just Ahaz, right? Like this is a a mutual relationship. Because is a, a nation's leader, is a nation's leader entirely responsible for the behavior of its people? No, right? No, one man cannot be responsible for the entire nation. But on the other hand, is a nation's people responsible for the actions of its leader? Not entirely, right? Pretty clearly, like, there's a back and forth. Is the leader responsible? Yeah, not entirely. Are the people responsible? Yeah, not entirely. What Isaiah is basically saying is you're all implicit, And yet, it's easy to minimize the impact a leader can have. Now, if I was going to translate some of what is occurring in Isaiah's day to our day, I think it might be helpful just to give us some examples or or help us think about the importance of a king. Um, So first of all, uh, right, from the secession of Judah, when Judah left Israel down to King Ahaz, That was about 200 years, okay? That was about 200 years. Now, can any of you guys think about any nations that gained independence by seceding from an oppressive political power roughly 200 years ago? Hmm, interesting. That doesn't ring a bell, right? So the nation of Judah at this point is about 200 years old. Right now, the nation of the United States of America is about 240 years old-ish. Now, If you just think about the U.S., think about all that has transpired in the past 200 years. Think about the year 1822. Think about all of the national leaders you learned about in history class or you've read about in your adult life. Think about who they were, what they faced, all the ways that they individually led and therefore shaped our country. And then just consider cultural shifts. How much has our culture shifted in the last 200 years? Our values, right? what's important, the way we interact with each other. Right? Even if we were looking at the past decades, since 2010, how much has changed? Why I'm bringing all this up is because this is what's occurring in the time of Ahaz. Every king leaves a mark. Every king has an imprint. And the culture is shifting wildly every time there's a new leader, every time there's a new regime. And so these leaders matter. If you would think about your favorite president in the last couple of decades, think about all the good that came from their leadership. Now think about your least favorite. That might be easier. (laughs) Think about all the the harm that you would ascribe to their leadership, all the ways that they twisted or or ruined culture. 
And within the U.S., our presidents are only in power for four to eight years. The rulers in the days of Judah would reign for five to 25 to 50 years. Think about the influence one king could have over the course of his lifetime of reign. And again, Judah's kings in line, little by little, have abandoned the wisdom and the governance of God and they pursued political and religious ideas that benefited them. And so what Isaiah is describing is the groaning of the people of Judah. And all of this, again, is I'm translating this so we realize that we too are groaning. I think all of us would look around at the world and say like, can we not do better? Like, even if your guy is in power, like we, we all want something better. We want a better leader. We want one who will transform culture, who will rewrite policies. We want someone with the strength and the wisdom to do that. That's what we are groaning for, even if we might not have put words to it just yet. All of that is what's leading up to Isaiah chapter 9. And here's what Isaiah chapter 9 is not about. It is not about electing the right leader. It's not about winning the culture war. It's not about destroying the altars of the pagan gods and rebuilding the temple. Isaiah chapter 9 is about the hope of a rebuilt nation, but it is not about the hope of humans rebuilding a nation. The nation of Judah passed away. In that form, it was conquered and destroyed. Its people were scattered until they were nothing but a remnant, as Isaiah calls them. And one of the nations that had a hand in that was the empire of Assyria, their once allies. But notice this, the empire of Assyria has also passed away. And the empires that followed them, the Babylonians and the Persians have passed away, and the ones that followed them, the Romans, have passed away. And if all of the empires of the world from then until now have passed away, some of them covered by the dust of time. So part of this is that the United States of America will pass away. It might be 50 years, it might be 200 years, but at some point, America will be covered in the dust of history. Now, I'm not bashing America. I'm glad to be an American, but what I'm doing is I'm translating Isaiah's message. This is what he was telling people. Your nation will pass away. He's calling them to repentance and obedience, trust in the, the Lord, absolutely. He is calling them to reformation, but he is saying, you cannot save yourselves. And Isaiah chapter 9 is a promise of a future nation built by God himself. Can I read that to you a little bit? The people who walked in darkness, this is Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You, God, have multiplied the nation and you have increased its joy. They, the people, rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, at the harvest when everything is plentiful, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is what he frees us from. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder 
the rod of his oppressor, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian, which was a, a great battle that God won. Verse five, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, meaning like raiment, every garment rolled in blood, the results of your wars is what he's saying. The result of all those wars will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This promise is all occurring because there will be a new government with a new ruler. That is the context and the message of Isaiah. He's getting at you need a better leader. You need a better king. Just point us more clearly again, verse six, the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's talking about a governmental leader. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, again, a royal governmental statu- uh, position and over his kingdom. So these four titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, those are the four titles that give us ways of understanding how he will rule and who he will be as ruler and king. They're describing the king. So what does it mean if our governmental ruler, our king, is a wonderful counselor? Well, it's best to start with the word counselor, right? (laughs) Let's define that. So again, in Isaiah's use, the word counselor is attached to a royal court. It's someone who's attached to the government, attached to, to leading and rulership. Someone who's meant to be wise, someone who gives advice wisely. And they bring that into their position of leadership. There's a little graph up here. So uh, this Hebrew word is uh, used uh, 23 times in the Old Testament. Several of those times are actually in Isaiah, but you'll notice that about 50% of the time it's translated into the word counselor. But the other 50% of the time, it's talking about an advisor, someone who gives counsel, someone who is a wise counselor, someone who's an official in the government, someone who's planning, creating strategies. This is the way that Isaiah is using it. Later in Isaiah chapter 19, we see this exact use in Isaiah chapter 19. He says this, the princes of zone are utterly foolish, right? He's talking about princes in government. And he says this, the wisest counselors of Pharaoh, meaning the men of the royal court that give Pharaoh counsel, they give stupid counsel, bad advisors. And then he says, where then are your wise men, your men who are wise? Notice this, what are they wise about? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. 
What Isaiah is saying is, where are your wise men who can tell you the mind of God? The princes of zone are utterly foolish because they give you stupid counsel. They have no idea what God's thinking. So Jesus, being given this title of wonderful counselor, He's a royal advisor who knows not just the schemes of men, but he has the wisdom of God. So this promised king whose the government will be upon his shoulders, he will possess and lead with wise counsel, knowing the mind of God. Now, if that's what Isaiah is meaning by just that word counselor, it gets so much more interesting. We tack on this word wonderful, right? So again, I've got a fun graph for you. If you look at the word wonderful, um, you can see that most of the time it's translated as wonder or wonders. Also wonderful. Like though that when we say wonderful, it means full of wonders, full of wonder. Some of the time it also means a miracle or a wonderful deed or a spectacle, something that draws you to it, something that is beyond understanding. So you can see in the center, it says a miracle or something unusual. So it's not just a really, really nice thing. It's something that is mind boggling. It's miraculous. All you can do is stare in wonder. If we look at Psalm 77, we see a little bit where this is actually in use. Psalm 77 says this, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder your work. I literally need to noodle my way through it. It's so amazing. I will meditate on your mighty deeds for your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God because you are the God who works wonders. So Isaiah is using that word wonderful to communicate the miraculous nature, the wonderful quality of the king acting as wise counselor. And again, he's pointing to what that wisdom pertains to. It pertains to wondrous, mind-blowing things, knowing the mind of God. As we were preparing for this teaching, uh, Zach Adams is pastor at Revelation Church, and he uh, used this proverb, uh, Proverbs chapter 8, to connect to this. And it's so good. I'd love to read it to you. What it does is it brings us to realization of what kind of miraculous wisdom is being spoken of. This is Proverbs chapter 8. It's verse 22 through 31. And the character speaking is a woman by the name of wisdom. Um, And it's, it's poetry, but it's helping us understand wisdom in the mind of God. Wisdom says this. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the firm, the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, 
When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. What Proverbs is about, what this is drawing us to realize is that this promised king possesses a wisdom that was before all things. So Jesus as wise counselor is not just clever. He knows the very fabric of creation. So a wonderful counselor king. He will rule with a wisdom that understands the blueprints of the universe. He designed time itself. He understands the vibration of the atom. He knows the curvature of the human heart. And he also knows why socks disappear in the washing machine and what your appendix is for. This king who knows the fabric of creation, he is our hope. Not only does he have the wisdom of where we need to be, but he has the power to do it. He is mighty God. He is everlasting father and he is prince of peace. And all of this, again, this is a prophecy pointing at the individual being of Jesus of Nazareth who we call Jesus Christ. Now, what does this change for you and I? Like this this understanding of wisdom. If he has wisdom that is wondrous in scope, like what does that actually mean for me? What does it mean for us as people following him? First, it means we can trust that Jesus is ruling, knowing the texture of the universe. Here's what I mean. Jesus is ruling And he has designed ideas and realities like justice. He has designed equal and fair treatment. He has designed love. He literally defines what those things are. And all of those things lead to human flourishing because he designed it that way. In his wisdom, he rules in such a way, knowing the nature of the human heart. And because he is wise, he did not expect us to rescue ourselves. In his wisdom, he planned that he would be the one to rescue and redeem his people. And all that I'm saying about him designing justice and love, like what does that have to do with anything? It's the fact that in his rule, he shares his wisdom. You and I know what justice is because he's put it inside of us. You and I know what love is because he has put it inside of us. But can you name one single group of people, more than one, with more than one person in it, (laughs) where justice is lived out perfectly? Can you think of any human relationship where love is expressed perfectly? The point is that he has put these things in us. We define them by him, and yet we need a king who will complete them. 
We need a king who will bring those things, who will take a, a bud of wisdom and blossom it into something complete and whole, something wondrous. And the best news of all of Isaiah chapter 9 is this. This is what Isaiah wrote at this time, or this is what the prophecy is saying. To us, a child is born. A child is given. The best news of Isaiah is that this has happened. Isaiah was prophesying into the future, and you and I look backwards into the past and say, that wonderful counselor, he's actually here. He came. That's not just an idea, something I have to look forward to, I have to wait for. That's actually something I can point to with specificity. Say, this is who that was. This is who that is. And this is who he will continue to be. Jesus Christ, the man who lived, gave us access to the wisdom of God. You, me, we have access to the wisdom of God because Jesus has revealed the mind of the Father. Jesus has revealed the mind of the Father. Proverbs uh, chapter 9, verse 10 simply says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What that means is the very first step of wisdom starts with the fear and the awareness of God. That is the very beginning step of acknowledging the reality of the universe. And what that means is the greatest single gift of wisdom that Jesus can and has given us is revelation of the Father. Uh, you might be familiar with um, John chapter 14, where one of Jesus' disciples are like, oh, Jesus, like, you're talking in a bunch of riddles. How do we know who the Father is? And Jesus says, you know the Father because you have known me. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to, so you would know me and therefore know the Father. Now imagine that, right? That's a pretty big claim, that the greatest bit of wisdom God can give anyone is awareness of himself, knowledge of his mind. It's a pretty big claim, right? But play this out with me for a second. Imagine you had wisdom in all things. You knew all the parenting tricks. You know how to run a successful business. You know how to navigate complex relationships. You knew all the wellness techniques for being like a little bodhisattva thing. And yet, that'd be pretty sweet, right? That'd be a good life. And yet, you did not have wisdom of the knowledge of God's reality. You did not know he existed. You did not know that he defines righteousness and therefore judgment. You did not know that there was an avenue of grace through the person of Christ. At the end of the day, where would you be? You'd be out in the dark. In the words of Ecclesiastes, your life would be a vapor. This is how the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians explains the wisdom of God. Um, I've actually chosen to read this out of a translation called the New Living Translation. It'll be on the screen uh, if you have a different one. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is Paul describing Jesus and the wisdom of God. He says this, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, and he quotes Isaiah, 
I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say that it is all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Christ to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Paul is saying that God in his wisdom knew that man would never reason their way toward him. So God, he knew that he would be, God would be seen as foolish. And so God has chosen to give Jesus and then the Holy Spirit to reveal God's plan of forgiveness and rescue. And this role that Jesus has, revealing the Father. That began in the life of Jesus, it continued after his resurrection, and it will continue for all of eternity. That role will never end. Even in the completion of Isaiah's prophecy, this day of restoration that we will look forward to, Jesus, as a wonderful counselor, will continue to reveal God the Father. Because we were designed to marvel and worship at God. That is literally how your soul gets new life. If you've been in any environment where your soul has magnified the Lord, like we were singing earlier, you know that those are the moments when you are most alive, when you are worshiping God. It doesn't have to be this or the songs or anything, but when your soul is worshiping, wondering at the person of God, that is when your soul is most vibrant and alive. And that is the role that Jesus' counsel will have for all of eternity. But Jesus doesn't stop with his rule. And Jesus doesn't stop with revealing the things of God. He continues to be a counselor in all of life. He continues to walk with us and give us wisdom that is pertinent to our daily living. James chapter 1 verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Ask and it will be given him. Sometimes when we feel like we're going in circles, we're we're looking for revelation of what we need to do. Uh, It could be that we have a misidentified target. Uh, we read James chapter one, verse five and think, oh, God says he'll give me wisdom generously. Great, like what do I need to do? Um, here's sometimes why we spin our wheels. We say, I want to go there 
God, give me wisdom. How do I get there? True wisdom is letting Jesus define the target and set the destination. True wisdom is saying, Jesus, where are you going? How do I get behind you? And the world will call this folly because the world will say, no, if you want to go somewhere, go there. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, if you want to go here, I'm actually going over here. I need you to leave everything you want and follow me. And the world will call that folly. The world will call that madness because the way of Jesus is not glamorous, nor good looking, nor easy. But if we circle all the way back around to the beginning, what are we groaning for? We're groaning for a leader. We're groaning for someone with wisdom and strength who sets the goal for our lives. That's what we're groaning after. And so for us to redirect the direction of our entire lives and our hearts to follow a man who is holy, who has wonderful counselor, or is a wonderful counselor, who is mighty God, that is what we wanted all along. And this king knows the true nature of reality. And try going somewhere other than where the king of the universe is headed. That is madness and folly. Jesus himself puts it in these words in Mark chapter 9. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross. Follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Two applications of thought for us as we conclude today. The first is this, abide. We began the year of 2021 with the theme of abide. That means to, to be in the presence of God, to rest in his presence, to let him uh, be, like for us to come into his presence. We pulled that out of John chapter 15. Um, so it would be this, if you want the wisdom of God, spend time in God's presence. Get to know his face. Read his scriptures. If you have determined some habits or some goals that you've been wanting to do to spend more time in word and prayer or whatever else, other practices that might be, our first application would be just give yourself to that process again. He is full of grace and he is with you. Give yourself to that process again. And the second application for us is this. You guys okay if I take 60 more seconds? Cool. Um, get out a piece of pen and paper if you can. There's connect cards in front of you uh, with paper and pen if you need it. Here's just my final application. And we can do this in 60 seconds together. But it's, um, I'd rather do it together than just kind of all of us forget to do this as homework. Just write down on that piece of paper a list of 1 through 10. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And as you are looking at that list, it doesn't have to be in any order. And I've given you 10 slots, so there's plenty of options. You just kind of like 
say whatever comes to mind. Here's my question for you. What are your sources of wisdom? Another way of saying that, who do you go to for counsel? And you can think of a few categories. Think of nearby people that you know, your friends, your family, local teachers, mentors. Then also consider idea people that influence you. Think of books, podcasts, radio hosts. And then consider leaders, whether they be political or religious, basically a wide net. Who has influence in your life? Who do you go to for counsel? If you have a couple, the next step is just put a star next to the top five that are most relevant, most influential. I'm just going to wait one more minute. I'm seeing a lot of pens and people writing. Here's one final question. As you look at that list of five most influential and kind of top 10, do they align with Jesus? If Jesus is the wonderful counselor who knows the blueprints of reality, do the people that provide wisdom in your life, are they in alignment with him? Or are they taking you in the wrong direction? Consider their message, the words they say, consider the destination where they will be taking you and consider their way of life. Who are they living as? Are they, do their lives resemble Jesus of Nazareth? He was a man full of wisdom and peace, as well as strength and the spirit of God. Isaiah chapter nine is all about the wonderful counselor as he completes reality. This prophecy to the future, there will be, those who were in darkness will now be in light. This is where we place our hope. Every day, we operate in reliance and trust in that king, the king who reveals the father, who's given us the spirit of God. He is our source of wisdom and hope for today. We can hold to that, we can live by that, and we can be empowered knowing that this king is the one who secures us. It is the zeal of God that will accomplish this. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you You make yourself known. You are a God who came to humanity, not expecting us to find our way to you, but you came um, generously saying, here I am, follow me. Let me transform you. Let me give you my spirit. This is your posture to us. You are firm and strong and kind. You are, are and will be a good king. Would you um, move our hearts to loyalty to you, that we would be willing to, in all sincerity, evaluate our counselors, be willing to leave the ones that don't point us in your direction and be willing to hold fast to and defend those who are from you, even when the world calls them folly and madness. But most of all, Father, would you be our counselor? Would you be our primary source of wisdom and hope? We love you. Amen.